Welcome to Killer Narratives, the podcast where horror stories haunt you in real life. I'm your host, Richard Palmer, and I'm excited to take you on a journey into the darkest corners of the mind. Thank you for joining us today for our third episode. If you end up enjoying today's episode, please remember to like, follow, share, and review it so that others can hopefully find it as well. You can find much more information on our website at killernarratives.com. There you can find links to all our social media accounts, our merch shop, as well as an option to donate to the podcast to help keep it going and reach new audiences. Getting a new podcast off the ground is very difficult, so any support you provide is greatly appreciated. If you have any scary stories you've written and would like to share with the world, please email me at richard at killernarratives.com. You can also email me if you have questions or comments about the podcast. Perhaps if there are enough questions by the end of season one, I will do a little question and answer session. If you want to get extra spooky, I suggest turning off your lights, lighting a candle, and laying in bed while you listen. Now let's get into our story, That Damned Monster. With the dim glow of a wax candle placed at the end of a rugged table, a man was trying to read something in a book. The book was old and worn out, making the text difficult to read. To see the words more clearly, the man would sometimes bring the page nearer to the candle's flame. This caused the book's shadow to darken half of the room, obscuring the faces of several people. In total, there were eight other men in the room. Seven of them sat quietly against the rough wooden walls, not far from the table due to the room's small size. If any of them reached out, they could have touched the eighth man, who was lying on the table with his face up, arms at his sides, and partially covered by a sheet. He was dead. The man with the book wasn't reading out loud, and no one spoke. Everyone seemed to be waiting for something to happen except for the lifeless man on the table. Through the window-like opening, the mysterious sounds of the wilderness at night filled the room. These noises included the eerie howls of a distant coyote, the rhythmic hum of insects in the trees, the strange calls of nocturnal birds, and the buzzing of clumsy beetles. There was also a soft, barely audible chorus of other sounds that seemed to stop abruptly, as if aware they were making too much noise. Despite the intriguing sounds, the people in the room paid no attention. Their rugged faces, even in the dim candlelight, showed that they were not interested in trivial matters unrelated to their practical concerns. It was clear that they were local men, farmers and woodsmen, accustomed to their surroundings. Thurston reading the book looked a little out of place compared to the others in the room. He seemed like someone who was familiar with the ways of the world, but his clothes suggested that he was used to living in the wilderness. His coat wasn't fashionable enough for San Francisco, and his shoes and hat looked like they were made for the outdoors rather than the city. Despite his unusual appearance, the man had an attractive face, although there was a hint of sternness about him. It was possible that he had adopted this demeanor because of his position of authority. He was a coroner, and it was because of his job that he had the book he was reading. The book had been found among the dead man's belongings in his cabin, where they were all gathered for the inquiry. Once the coroner finished reading, 
he placed the book into his breast pocket. Just then the door opened, and a young man walked in. It was evident he wasn't from the mountain area, as he dressed like a city dweller. His clothes were dusty, showing he had been traveling. In fact, he had been riding hard to make it to the inquest. The coroner acknowledged him with a nod, but no one else greeted the newcomer. We've been waiting for you, said the coroner. We need to wrap up this matter tonight. The young man smiled. I apologize for the delay, he replied. I didn't leave to avoid your summons, but to send my newspaper an account of what I assume I'm here to testify about. The coroner smiled back. The account you sent to your newspaper, he said, is likely different from the one you'll provide here under oath. The young man replied with some irritation and a visible blush. It's up to you. I made a copy of what I sent using carbon paper. It wasn't a news story because it's unbelievable, but rather a work of fiction. I can include it as part of my testimony under oath. But you said it's unbelievable, the coroner pointed out. That doesn't matter, sir, if I swear that it's true. The coroner didn't seem to be too affected by the young man's resentment. He remained silent for a few moments, staring at the floor. The other men in the room whispered to each other, but kept their eyes fixed on the dead man's face. Finally, the coroner looked up and said, let's continue the inquest. The men took off their hats, and the witness was sworn in. What's your name? The coroner asked. William Harker. How old are you? 27. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. Were you with him when he died? Close by. How did you happen to be there? I was visiting him to go hunting and fishing, but I was also there to observe his strange solitary way of life. He seemed like a good character for a story, and I write fiction. I sometimes read them, the coroner said. Thank you, replied the witness. Not necessarily yours, just stories in general, the coroner quipped. Some of the jurors laughed. In a serious setting, humor can stand out even more. People tend to laugh easily during breaks and tense situations, and a joke in a somber room can take everyone by surprise. Tell us the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or documents you'd like. The witness understood, took out a manuscript from his breast pocket, held it close to the candle, and flipped through the pages until he found the passage he needed. Then he began to read. We had just started our day, as the sun had barely risen. We were hunting for quail, each of us carrying a shotgun, and we had one dog with us. Morgan mentioned that the best hunting ground was beyond a particular ridge, so we crossed it by following a trail through the dense bushes. On the other side was a relatively flat area covered with wild oats. As we came out of the bushes, Morgan was only a few yards ahead. Suddenly we heard some rustling in the bushes nearby, as if an animal was thrashing about. We must have startled a deer, I said. I wish we had brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped to watch the shaking bushes, didn't say anything. Instead, he readied his gun to shoot. I found his excitement surprising, as he was known for his composure, even in dangerous situations. Come on, I said. You're not seriously going to shoot a deer with birdshot, are you? He still didn't respond. 
but I could see the paleness of his face as he glanced at me. It was then that I realized we were dealing with something more serious, and I guessed that we had come across a grizzly bear. I moved closer to Morgan, cocking my gun as I did. The bushes had become still, and the noises had stopped. But Morgan remained focused on the spot. What is it? What on earth's going on? I asked. That damn thing, he replied without turning his head. His voice was strained and unnatural, and he was visibly shaking. I was about to say more when I noticed the wild oats near the disturbance moving in an inexplicable manner. It's hard to describe. It was as if a gust of wind not only bent the oats, but pushed them down, crushing them so they didn't spring back up. This motion slowly made its way towards us. I had never seen anything like this bizarre, unexplained phenomenon. But I strangely didn't feel afraid. I recall a moment when I looked out an open window and mistook a small tree nearby for one of the larger trees in the distance. It appeared the same size as the others, but its more distinct and sharp details made it seem out of place. This simple misperception of depth startled me, almost scaring me. We rely so much on the predictable behavior of nature that any disruption seems like a threat to our safety or a sign of impending disaster. So the mysterious movement of the plants and the slow, steady advance of the disturbance were quite unsettling. My companion seemed genuinely scared, and I couldn't believe my eyes when he suddenly aimed his gun at the agitated grass and fired both barrels. Before the smoke cleared, I heard a loud, savage cry, like the scream of a wild animal. Morgan threw his gun to the ground and ran away as fast as he could. At the same moment, I was violently knocked down by something unseen in the smoke, a soft, heavy object that felt like it had been thrown at me with great force. Before I could stand up and grab my gun, which seemed to have been knocked out of my hands, I heard Morgan screaming in what sounded like unbearable pain, mixed with the harsh, aggressive noises you'd hear from fighting dogs. Terrified beyond words, I managed to get back on my feet and look towards where Morgan had gone. I hope I never have to witness anything like that again. Less than thirty yards away, my friend was on one knee, his head tilted back at a horrifying angle. Without a hat, his long hair a mess, and his whole body violently moving side to side, back and forth. His right arm was raised, but I couldn't see a hand. The other arm was hidden from view. As I recall this bizarre scene, there were moments when I could only see parts of his body. It was as if he was partially erased, and then a shift in his position would make him fully visible again. All of this must have happened within a few seconds, but during that time, Morgan took on the stances of a determined wrestler being overpowered by a stronger opponent. He was all I could see, although not always clearly. Throughout the incident, his shouts and curses could be heard amidst a chaotic cacophony of rage and fury, like I'd never heard from a person or animal before. For a moment, I hesitated, unsure of what to do. Then, dropping my gun, I ran towards my friend to help him. I vaguely thought he might be having a seizure or some kind of convulsion, but before I could reach him, he fell to the ground, silent and motionless. All sounds stopped, yet a new terror gripped me as I noticed the same mysterious movement in the wild oats, extending from the area around my fallen friend towards the edge of the woods. 
only when the movement reached the woods could I finally look away and check on my companion. He was dead. The medical examiner got up from his chair and approached the deceased person. He gently lifted a corner of the covering and pulled it back, revealing the whole naked body. In the glow of the candlelight, the corpse displayed a yellowish clay-like hue. It, however, had broad spots of black and blue, obviously from blood that had leaked under the skin. The chest and sides looked as if they had been bashed in. There were dreadful lacerations on the skin. It was torn to shreds. The coroner walked to the end of the table and carefully untied a silk handkerchief that had been wrapped under the chin and tied on top of the head. As the handkerchief was removed, it revealed the victim's throat. Some jurors, who had stood up to see better, regretted their curiosity and looked away. Witness Harker, feeling faint and nauseous, went to the open window and leaned out over the sill. Placing the handkerchief back on the dead man's neck, the coroner moved to a corner of the room and picked up several garments one by one from a pile of clothing, pausing to display each for inspection. All the clothes were ripped and stained with dried blood. The jurors didn't bother to examine them closely, as they seemed disinterested. In reality, they had seen this type of evidence before. The only new information for them was Harker's testimony. Gentlemen, the coroner said, I believe we've covered all the evidence. Your responsibility has been made clear to you. If you have no further questions, please step outside and determine your verdict. Foreman stood up. A tall, bearded man in his sixties, dressed in rough clothing. I have a question, Mr. Coroner, the foreman spoke up. Which asylum did the last witness escape from? Mr. Harker, the coroner responded seriously and calmly. Which asylum did you recently escape from? Harker turned red again, but chose not to respond. The seven jurors then stood up and left the room quietly. If you're done insulting me, sir, Harker said to the officer once they were alone with the dead body, can I go now? Sure, the officer said. As Harker made his way out, he stopped and turned back, his professional instincts taking over. I recognize that book you have there. It's Morgan's diary. You seemed interested in it while I was testifying. Can I see it? The public would like to know more. The book won't make a difference in this case, the officer replied, putting the diary in his pocket. All the entries were made before the writer's death. After Harker left, the jury re-entered and gathered around the covered corpse on the table. The foreman sat near a candle and wrote the following verdict, which everyone signed with varying degrees of difficulty. We, the jury, conclude that the cause of death was a mountain lion attack, although some of us still believe that the victim might have had fits. In the late Mr. Morgan's diary, there are several intriguing entries that could potentially have scientific significance. However, during the inquest, the diary was not presented as evidence. Perhaps the coroner felt it would only confuse the jury. The date of the first mentioned entry is unclear, as the top part of the page has been torn off. The remaining portion of the entry reads, He ran in a half circle, always keeping his head facing the center and then he would stop and bark furiously. Eventually, he sprinted into the bushes as fast as he could, 
At first I thought he had gone mad, but upon returning to the house, I found no other change in his behavior except for what was clearly caused by the fear of punishment. Can dogs see with their noses? Do smells create images in their brains of whatever is producing the odor? September 2nd. Last night I was stargazing as they rose above the ridge east of the house. I noticed they disappeared one by one from left to right. Only a few would disappear at a time, but anything within a degree or two of the crest would vanish. It was like something was blocking them, but I couldn't see it. The stars weren't close enough to show its outline. I don't like this. Several weeks' worth of entries are missing. Three pages have been torn out. September 27th. It's back again. I find evidence of its presence every day. I spent all last night watching, hidden with my gun in hand, loaded with buckshot. In the morning, fresh footprints were there, just like before. I could swear that I didn't sleep, yet I'd barely get any sleep at all. It's horrifying and unbearable. If these experiences are real, I'll go insane. If they're imagined, then I'm already insane. October 3rd. I won't leave. This is my house and land. I refuse to be scared away. Cowards are not favored by God. October 5th. I can't take it anymore. I've invited Harker to stay with me for a few weeks. He's level-headed, so I can tell if he thinks I'm crazy. October 7th. I finally figured it out. The answer came to me suddenly last night. Like a revelation. It's so simple. There are sounds that we can't hear because they are either too high or too low for the human ear. I've watched flocks of blackbirds singing in the treetops. Suddenly all of them fly away at the same time, at the exact same moment. There must have been a signal or a high-pitched call that I could not hear. I've seen the same thing happen with other birds, like quails, even when they're widely separated. Sailors know that even when whales are miles apart, they can all dive at the same time and disappear from sight. The signal is too low for sailors on the deck to hear, but they can feel the vibrations in the ship, like the base of an organ in a cathedral. Just like sounds, there are colors that we can't see. At both ends of the spectrum of light, chemists can detect actinic rays, which represent colors that are integral to light, but invisible to us. The human eye can only see a few colors on the full traumatic scale. I'm not crazy. There are colors that we can't see. And, dear God, the creature is that color. Thank you so much for joining me today for the third episode of Killer Narratives. Remember to like, follow, and share the podcast if you enjoyed it. You can also visit our website at killernarratives.com for more information.